This is M.I.P. With Masamela Mafumo. Mark Thompson. Get woke. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Ladies and gentlemen, it's always a pleasure here on Make It Plain to meet new people, uh, to meet new organizations and highlight the work that they're doing. Well, new to me, perhaps new to this audience, not necessarily new organizations, but but new to us. And one such one joins us today. We're going to hear about the Children's Village from the president and CEO of the Children's Village. Can't wait to hear about all the great work they're doing and the difference they're making in the lives of young people. The president is with us, Dr. Jeremy Cahomban. Dr. Cahomban, welcome to Make It Plain. How are you, brother? Great to be here, Reverend. Thank you for the opportunity. It is a pleasure to have you. So tell us exactly what is the Children's Village? We are one of the oldest charities in the United States, founded in 1851, so a long history. And uh, today we serve three populations of uh, children and youth, uh, and two of them are in what we consider the deep end of the system, right? So children touched by foster care, meaning that they've been separated from family, children who have been separated from family because they've been touched by juvenile justice or criminal justice. And then the third population are children who are at risk and who are also alone. So they, they're not with family, but um, they are being, they've been traveling alone uh, because of migration uh, and their immigrant status. And in each with, and with each of those populations, we have one mission to make sure that we connect children to family because we believe that success requires love and belonging, not a system, not an agency, not an institution, not a government program, but somebody who steps up and says, you're mine, I love you, I love you unconditionally, and I love you with implicit love. What is this current state of the foster care system? Are things improving or are things getting worse? No, I actually think in the last decade, we made some substantial improvements. One of the great improvements we've made is accepting that children do better with families, right? Um, we, when we separate children from family, that's dramatic, Regardless of the issue, that's traumatic. The best thing we can do for them is to give them family. So in the last decade, decade and a, decade and a half across the United States, there has been a recognition that if the biological family and the immediate family can't for some reason care for that child, that our next best opportunity is to look at the extended family. So this idea of kinship, 
right? So uncles, aunts, and even go broader, a pastor, a rabbi, an imam, someone that's connected to that family. So that is an incredible move forward because until that happened, what happened often with children across the United States is many of them would go into residential care. I have nothing against residential care. Children's Village started residential care in 1851, but residential care is not family. It needs to be short-term and targeted. Kids do best when they're with family. So we are seeing some improvements. And so I, I take it Children's Village has been helping to kind of push and move things along toward placing children with families. And, and we, I, I'm sorry. We are on the forefront of that message. And, and we've spent the last 20 years designing models to prove that it can be done. Okay. It is it, it, at the, the decision-making level on at foster care is, is it, and, and I, again, this is, I'm, I'm interested in learning about this. Is it our decisions where you all able to have an impact, for example, to make the case for families more so than residential care? Are those decisions made at the local level or, or, or elsewhere? Uh, in New York, they're made at the local level. And when they are made at the local level, we often get the best outcome. Now, look, keep in mind, there are some incredible disparities in foster care, right? Even though the vast majority of children across the United States are children of poor and uh, families and a lot of white families in the system, children of color are disproportionately impacted with black children being separated from their families faster in most instances they remain uh, they they go from low security to high security faster meaning they penetrate the system faster they stay longer and often black children exit with the worst outcomes the only other group in the united states that comes close to the black families experience in foster care are the native tribal families so when we have local leaders that are cognizant of the disparity, understands the community and understands where we are strong in our community, we can actually make great, great decisions on behalf of family. I, explain what you mean by going black families or black children going from low security to high security. Meaning we often see black families uh, who are separated from their children, those children uh, they start in what's called preventive care in, in some states, a state like New York, where we have a social worker that goes into the home, that attends to that family, tries to give them support. But when you look at the Black family's experience, we also see that at some point in that relationship, someone makes a decision and says, well, you know, despite all that we're doing, this child can't be in this home. And so the child is removed and placed in a foster home. If that child is fortunate, that child goes into a kinship family. So lives with an aunt, uncle, or a family member. When that doesn't happen, and especially with the older children, the older black children. So as they get closer to their teen years, we see them going from then a family uh, placement to a residential placement. And then we also have this term that we use, which is actually not one that you typically would hear, but we call it crossover, 
we see a number of those children crossing from the foster care system into the juvenile justice system because once they're in care, something happens and now there's a, a juvenile justice right. involvement. So right. it becomes a cruel pipeline for some of those children. Yeah, it, that, that is a, a very cruel pipeline. When it comes to, with, to Black families, are, are there greater or lesser challenges when it comes to finding those extended members of the family to set up kinship placements? So there are two types of challenges uh, that we see with, uh, with our Black families. The first one that should be uh, lifted up is the problem of implicit bias. In the power of implicit bias is idea that Black families are not together, that Black families are not as good. You know, it's tied deep into our history around race and racism in the United States. So um, in some jurisdictions, it is not unusual, even in our work, for us to, you know, sit with a team and immediately sense that, you know, when we start talking about that Black family, that there's a sense that, you know, well, maybe it's not the best decision for the child. And so much of that is tied to implicit bias. And we've got to do a lot of work to say, no, no, hold it, hold it. That's, you know, that family loves that child as much as any other family would. So that the first is the issue of implicit bias. The second is uh, in an urban area like New York, where we, we have families, uh, especially African-American families coming from all over the country. We, we actually end up with children in foster care where a family member left the South, came here with someone, is now socially isolated, may not have all the social supports and family supports around them. Something happens, the child the comes child into the system and finding and reconnecting to family somewhere else takes additional work. Occasionally, you know, there could be a family in another state that says, well, you know, she didn't listen or he didn't listen. Usually it's a mom, you know, followed, followed someone, came to New York and now bad things have happened. Uh, they haven't had a relationship. So there's a lot of extra work that we need to do for those uh, small number of children that have been separated. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned too, uh, Native American children. Yeah. Um, what are some of the unique challenges they face in the system? Or is it is it pretty much the same? It is, is the same. So when you look at, uh, look, look at the Black experience in the United States and the Native experience, right? So first, uh, you have segregation, in, you know, intentional, intentional, legally sanctioned segregation. And the, and the qualities of segregation are always the same. Poor housing, poor quality housing, poor services, failing schools, and uh, a lack of infrastructure and investment in the things that you and I would want for our families, you know, safe, we call them safe spaces and safe places. And look at what happened to the native tribes, reservations, same thing, same thing. You know, densely packed, removed from their own homes, not allowed to be, not allowed to move out, uh, you know, leads to the same problems that families typically have 
in any other community where they're deprived of the things that you and I would want for our own families. Um, so that's African-American, Native American. And I imagine um, that our Latino children and families face some of the same challenges. And I guess, too, those are even more complicated when it comes to immigration, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and the unique complication with immigration is, um, look, the United States has uh, welcomed and integrated millions of immigrants, right, F from our founding on, and I happen to be one of them. But the unique problem that our immigrant families, especially our Latin immigrant families are facing right now, is they, they are working, they're working really hard, but they don't have a pathway to citizenship. So when you are undocumented in the United States, your life is the life of a second-class person because there's always a fear that anything that happens to you could trigger an immigration experience. And that's a lot of stress on these families. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine so. Um, so uh, um, it sounds like what well, you said that there has been some improvement over the past decade. Um, I'm particularly curious about, you mentioned that unfortunate pipeline from the foster system into the juvenile justice system. Are, are we beginning to see those numbers go down some too? It's state by state. In states that have um, been willing to deal with this crossover and deal with it head on, we are seeing improvement, um, but it's, it's a very new effort. So in, in our work, you know, there are no quick solutions. There are no perfect solutions. We have to build on ideas and look at evidence and make improvements. So in many states, we have begun to do that. And in some states, uh, you know, the systems still, you know, think of our kids as bad kids, right? One of the things we always say is we don't work with bad kids. We work with kids to whom bad things have happened. It's a big, yeah. big difference. <laughs> same, almost the same words. We don't work with bad kids. We work with kids to whom bad things have happened. And the bad things that have happened to them are, you know, segregation, family separation, racism. I mean, these are, these are issues that complicate and, and limit our children's potential. And it takes a lot of work to undo the damage of what they've gone through. Yeah, and, and again, these are kids. These are children. That's it. So, so, so when people say bad children, well, children are born bad. They just can't. They just don't pop up bad. Uh, so you're right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's obviously the, the circumstances that have happened to them. You just don't come out of the womb and you're just inherently bad. Um, we know some people think that way, unfortunately. Um, which, which takes me back to the history. You know, I am... In, intrigued by the longevity of the organization, 1851, and you mentioned immigration. So obviously in 1851 and for decades, um, especially here in New York, the, the immigrant population was, was constantly expanding. Yep. Um, but, you know, a lot of those were European immigrants. I, I guess um, we have to kind of, uh, 
assume or hypothesize that the the way immigrant children were treated back then by the system um, is very different from the way immigrant children, particularly immigrant children of color, are treated by the system in the in the years that followed up to today. Right. Yes, there are very clear differences even though, even at that time, there was disparity, right? So the first is black children were not in the system. I mean, they couldn't even get a, get a service. They were out there, you know, they were locked up. There was still, you know, slavery and uh, indentured servitude uh, through the black codes at, at the time of our founding. But non-English speaking immigrants and Irish immigrants, those children were also treated differently. The Irish immigrants, because they were Irish and Catholic, and non-English speaking uh, immigrants, uh, children, and Ashkenazi Jewish children who were uh, mostly Eastern European also were in the system, were being arrested for survival crime in, in places like New York. But the outcome was different because big, their whiteness allowed them to integrate and create new identities for themselves and build successful families, whereas the black community and the communities of color were segregated with all the, all the unfortunate uh, events of, uh, that continue to happen in segregation. What we see with uh, the new immigrants of color is that there are some uh, differences. A, uh, many of their parents and their family members may not be welcome at the border, but once they come into the United States, there's such a need for employment and employees that this, uh, this population is working, often working at higher rates in most communities than our African-American community is. So, uh, because they, again, it's implicit bias, right? You know, there are people that look at a, 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 one of the black young men that, I, uh, that work with us and thinks of him as untrustworthy, but they are more willing to hire an immigrant who is undocumented because that's a person that won't complain and they believe is somehow is a harder working person. So there are these biases that play here, uh, but when it comes to the children, the big problem is that when your family is undocumented and they have to constantly live in fear that something could happen that could separate the family, that's a big burden for a young child to carry. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it certainly is. You all actually uh, have within Children's Village a committee, I believe it's called Undoing Institutional Racism. Uh, you've undone a lot of the, a lot of it already just in our conversation i appreciate that but but tell us more about that committee and and, and what it's up to it started about uh 12 years ago it was actually our chief operating officer who a white uh, a white woman who had worked here for many years just retired recently and uh and a parent advocate uh, a young a mother um black uh, whose child had been in the system that was working with us. Uh, and they, this is all before all the racial awakening, right? Came and said, look, we've got a crazy history. We have a lot of people of color working here and we are working with young people of color. We've got to do something different. And 
it was tough because the committee forced us to ask questions about ourselves that we didn't want to ask. And they also wanted to see confirmation of our answers. So I'll give you the, the first. I, I wasn't part of the committee. I was on the outside. They would come to me. The first one they came to me and, as, uh, uh, and lifted up was this issue of how we paid. And I said, what do you mean how we pay? They said, we've got a real problem in how we pay our employees. I said, well, explain to me what that means. So uh, we take great pride in training. If you, Reverend, if you start at Children's Village, you start with us as anything, even our chaplain, you will spend eight days in training before you step into the workforce. And we were so proud of that training and I'm still very proud of that training. And I just spoke at it today before I came here to uh, meet with you. When you came into our training, if you were a professional, we paid you your salary on the first day of training because that's your first day with us. However, if you were a paraprofessional or if you worked on the front line, we gave you a training wage, which was barely, which was the minimum wage. If you were a professional, you got your salary. If you were not a professional in the professional uh, uh, tranche of employment, you got a training wage paid by the hour. So for every hour that you were in training, you got paid. Now, our professionals at that time, this has changed, this is 18 years ago, our professionals at that time were mostly white and Asian and a few Hispanics and immigrants. Our frontline was predominantly black and a few brown. 13 years ago, that solution cost us $250,000 to fix that. But as I look back at my career at Children's Village, I often think of that as the first time when I had to understand that talking about race and disparity is not good enough. You got to actually take the risk of doing something about it. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't grow up in the United States. I don't know what it means to be black. I grew up in a multiracial home. I, mm. Everything I've learned about the black experience, I heard from my mother and from my friends who were black. But, you know, mm. when, I, when we were growing up, I would travel with I, uh, one of my roommate who was black. And, you know, we'd, we'd experience police officers very differently. I, I never feared for that, a, pol a police interaction. Mm. But I knew he did. I didn't know why. It took me years to understand why. So to me, that conversation around pay was one of those pivotal moments when I got to understand that I don't know how it happens but the experience that we create for African-American, uh, the African-American community is often different unless we are intentional about making it equal. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. So I have to ask you this though, 
Um, what called you to this particular work, uh, Dr. Cahoban? What what called you to be in service to young people um, who need to be with families? What what called you to Children's Village? I grew up in a home with the parents who are medical missionaries, uh, three biological, three adopted children. Um, I didn't want to be like my parents. I want to be, wanted to be a military officer like my grandparents. Um, and I was in Emporia, Kansas. I was in ROTC. I was training at Fort Riley. And one day my captain, this is a small town in the middle of Kansas, said, I need a volunteer. There's a group home in town. They need someone. I said, hey, maybe I can do something. And I walked in there and it fundamentally changed my life. Um, it did happen overnight, but the first thing I realized when I walked in there was there were all these young people that didn't know where their parents were. And they had these, this was a long time ago, you know, they had prescribed times for phone calls and sometimes they'll wait for the call, the call didn't come, or sometimes the other young person was on the phone too long. So the parent called and the call didn't connect. This was before cell phones. And I was watching pain around me. And I said, you know, I have a little time when I'm not at training and in school, I'll come back. And I used to take the kids fishing um, in the Neosho River. And then we'd bring the fish and the crawfish back and I'd cook for them. And the more I got to know them, the more I realized that they wanted the same things I wanted. But they didn't have people in their lives that had their back. And a few years later, when I came to New York to do my PhD, I called my captain and then I called my mom and I said, I'm making a big change. Here I am. That's, 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 a, <laughs> that's a beautiful story. Uh, one other thing I want to ask you, uh, just to go back to the way the system operates, and I appreciate your enlightening me and our audience about the importance of the, the family connections, the extended family, the kinship family. But where the kinship family doesn't come into fruition for a particular child or group of children, and they end up oftentimes being placed with another family. Um, obviously, uh, over the years, uh, there's been a lot of conversation about uh, particularly children of culture and from different cultural backgrounds, at least being placed with families of the same cultural background or persuasion. Um, how does Children's Village uh, feel about that? And then not only that, uh, we know we now, family itself has become more diverse. We have um, a, a marriage equality now. We have same-sex families. Um, and um, obviously, those homes can be as providing and as loving as, as any other homes. So what does Children's Village take into account when the kinship family situation is not readily available? What do you all take into account? Do you look at yeah. uh, finding families similar to the cultural background of the children? And where do uh, same-sex parents and, and families come in when it's time to make a decision about where it's best for a young person to go? That's a great question, and I have the answer. Uh, we define family very broadly. And if you go to my Twitter stream or to our website, you'll see the stories. Here are the two conditions we want met. 
someone that loves that child unconditionally and implicitly. I think we all understand what unconditional love means because we have it, but implicit love is a little more nuanced. What, in, what implicit love means is that someone loves you for who you are right now, not for who you will become, right? Right now. Children's Village works with teenagers. We work with a lot of young children, but our passion is around teenagers. And in the United States, the children that often go without family, especially our young black children, are teenagers. We just want one person that will step up and say, I love you for who you are right now. You can be a father, a mother, two fathers, two mothers, three, four, doesn't matter, at least one. That's it. Unconditional and implicit love. If you tell me you have it, I've got a child for you because there is no child that's too old to be loved. And obviously, too, I guess it goes without saying, but we should say it. Those who are listening, as you were called, perhaps there are more of us who have the ability to give and share that kind of love, who should make ourselves available uh, and hopefully to provide homes for children. Is, is that not ultimately the calling you'd like to, the, the gospel that you'd like to have spread that we should have spread? That is the call. Whoever you are, you can be retired, you could be single, you could be married, doesn't matter. We have children that need homes. And I, I, I got to tell you, it's not going to be easy. It's not perfect. You know, it's, it doesn't always have storybook narratives, but it is the most rewarding work you'll ever do. Ever, ever do. Yeah, yeah. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. And I'll be honest with you, I, I have peers, and I've, I've got two children. Um, but in, in this generation, I, I mean, I don't know how old you are. I'm 56. You, I'm sure you're younger than me. Um, but in, in my peer group, um, a lot of my peers never had children just for whatever reason. You know, generations do it different. Some generations have a lot of children. Some generations just don't. And I talked to my peers and they said, well, we, you know, we, we they they feel 
that they've missed something. Yeah. Um, some who are older are trying trying to come up with all the the, the newly scientific ways to, to have children. But I hope people listening understand that there are children here. And and you you can provide love to them. You know, one of the things I'm most proud of when we had the Million Man March, uh, and you may recall this, the call was made for more African-Americans to get involved in adoption and in foster care because of the disproportionate number of, of African-American young people who did not have families and places to go. And at, at, at one time, we didn't even have the diversity of homes. And a lot of times it was, it was a white family. Um, white families, a lot of times had the resources, the income, and they would get African-American children, other children of color. Um, some of those situations worked out, some of them didn't, obviously. But folks, I, I hope uh, as, as, our, as our brother, Dr. Cahomben, has talked about how he was called, uh, I hope you would also hear what he said about love. And there are many ways we can serve, many ways we can help. Uh, uh, he's an activist as well, and we appreciate him for that. I'm an activist. Some of us are going to be activists all the time. But for others of us, maybe our activism can be helping to provide homes for some of these young people and being involved in it. That is a form of activism, especially in this day and age. We say, oh, the criminal justice system, the carceral system is taking too many and affecting too many. How many of us have just heard for the first time the relationship between the foster care system and the carceral system, that crossover? So a lot of us thought, before you said it, Dr. Cahoma, a lot of folks thought crossover meant just in music, you know, Whitney Houston crossed over. She did, <laughs> but it's stuff like that. But I mean, he's just enlightening us, folks. So I hope people get that. So a lot of us say things about the criminal justice system, but look at what you could do just in this situation here. And if we can save one child, uh, we can save many, many others. Yep. Uh, I was saying to a group yesterday, my grandmother used to sing a song, an old song in the church, right in the corner where you are, someone far from harbor, you may help across the bar, right in the corner where you are, just that one corner and you can make a difference. This has been an incredible conversation. Uh, I'm touched and inspired by uh, what you do. And, and I also offer to you that, you know, ministry is not exclusive to those of us who wear the collar. If you look at minister in the dictionary, it's a verb. It means to serve. And I applaud your ministry, uh, doctor. And I applaud the ministry of Children's Village. You all are doing a great, great work. It's really an honor to talk to you. And please in, invite me to visit sometimes. I like to come over there and just be touched in person by all the great work you all are doing. You have an open invitation, Reverend. Anytime you want to just drop me an email, come on by. Uh, we've got a lot to show you, buildings that we build. You know, we, we can't undo history unless right. we create a new history. Yeah. And we've got an opportunity to create a new history. Beautiful, beautiful. Dr. Jeremy Cahomben, check out the website, childrensvillage.org. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister or brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. 
And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.